This morning, we continue our study of the book of Luke, and we come to Luke 9, verse 51, which begins the third major division of Luke's gospel. This is the third stage in Luke's defense of the early Christian movement. You may have seen on the the announcement slides before and after the service that we've entitled this sermon series, Luke, Christianity on Trial. That's because Luke is writing to a Roman official of some sort, a man named Theophilus. He's likely someone who plays a role in the trial of the Apostle Paul. And Luke seeks to present the facts of this religious movement of Christianity. Luke presents how this movement began, who is responsible for it, what it's all about, and what fruit has come from it. This book of Luke is great for anyone who simply wants to know the facts about Christianity. And really, the chief defendant in this trial is not the missionary Paul, and the, the, the defendant is not even primarily Jesus of Nazareth. The, the, the defendant is instead the entire Christian movement. We can draw that conclusion when we remember that Luke wrote a second volume, the book of Acts, meant to be a companion to the book of Luke. And in Acts, the attention shifts off of the person of Jesus and onto his first generation of followers and what happened. And so the two books together give us a coherent picture of the origins of this Christian movement. But here we are in the, the first volume, and Luke focuses here on the person of Jesus, the movement's founder. And Luke defends the mission of this founder, this man, Jesus, in a few phases. You can take a look at the map of Luke on the the left side and the inside of, of the bulletin, where we saw in the first division of the book that Luke defends Jesus' credentials. That was chapter 1 through halfway through chapter 4. His credentials consisted of being the salvation of God and the Son of God. He is himself the salvation, the promised salvation of God for both the Jews and the entire world. And Jesus claims to be in this section, and he's validated in his claim to be the very son of God who brings this salvation. And then in the book's second division, which we, uh, uh, we moved on, we just wrapped up last week. The defendant's fundamentals, we saw what Jesus is all about. What are his fundamentals? What, what is the movement that came from him all about? And in the sections under that, we saw in chapters 4 through 6, his teaching, which was promoting not political revolution against Rome, but it was promoting spiritual transformation in the lives of his people. So we saw his teaching. And then in chapters 7 and 8, we saw his offer of salvation through faith, which is for all people, especially the weak and needy of society. And then we saw in chapter 9, his followers, 
who in that chapter are not painted in bright and glowing colors. They occasionally have flashes of insight into who Jesus is. You might remember when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah of God. But they fail to grasp the true nature of Jesus' mission and his kingship. They're unable to do all they've been asked to do. They can't cast out a demon, even though Jesus gave them authority to do that. They're arguing with one another, seeking greatness, and they're feeling threatened by any perceived competition. This is not the sort of picture you would paint of the, the, first, the core group of a new movement if you wanted to pr- just paint a rosy picture and promote that movement. This has the air of credibility, the air of factuality. And so now this morning we come to the book's third major division. You see number three on that map, the defendant's goals. And I would like to survey this section because it's a long section. It goes on for about 10 chapters. I want to survey this under the first point of your outline, a life of discipleship. A life of discipleship. There's a funny thing about this part of the book, these, these 10 chapters from 951 all the way through halfway through chapter 19. The funny thing is that, in a sense, Luke could have gone without this part of the book. As far as the narrative goes, he's writing a narrative, he's writing a story. And as far as that narrative goes, almost nothing really happens in this section. Luke more or less puts Jesus in a literary stasis. He's frozen in the act of traveling toward Jerusalem. You could read chapter 9, verse 51, and then chapter 19, verse 28, the start of the book's final division. You could read those two verses as though there's nothing in between them. Let me show you. Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. You see... Almost nothing happens in between there, as far as the plot goes of the narrative. And not only that, not only does very little happen as far as the plot, but even with respect to Luke's overall themes in his book, they would function just fine without this large third section of the book. In part one... Luke presents Jesus as himself the salvation of God. That's part of his credential. In part two, Jesus proclaims the coming salvation of God through himself. And he really lands on that salvation. And then in part four, starting in chapter 19, Jesus goes and he accomplishes the salvation that he's been talking about when he dies in Jerusalem. So the themes would work without part three, if you just took that out. All that happens as far as the plot between chapters 9 and 19 is that Jesus continues on his way to Jerusalem, where he will eventually accomplish the salvation he's been talking about it. And this this literary stasis, as I'm calling it, this freezing of the action, is so stark that commentators even have a label for it. They simply call this section of Luke the travelogue. Or the travel narrative. Because all that's happening here is Jesus is just on his way. But it's fascinating. By freezing the action, 
Luke is able to take these 10 chapters to draw out and clarify in great detail what the whole Christian movement is all about. Luke uses this slowing, this freezing of the plot in order to draw out the implications of what he's told us so far. He's going to show us what is Jesus really after? How would he describe the results that he expects? When does he expect these things to play out? And what sort of people does he want his followers to be? Let me show you how this plays out. Luke divides this large section into four subsections, and they're broken down in your map of Luke there, the four sections. His literary signal that that marks a new subsection is simply a reminder that the plot is still frozen and that Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem. Let me show you. Luke 9.51 kicks it off. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's the start of this first subsection. Then in chapter 10, verse 38, we're told, as they went on their way, see, he reminds us, it's still frozen, they're still going on their way, Jesus entered a village. And then in chapter 13, verse 22, he went on his way, through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And finally, in 17, verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So four times he tells us that he was on his way to Jerusalem. And then, as I mentioned before, Luke unfreezes the action when Jesus actually arrives in 1928. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, and now the plot finally advances. Something actually happens. Now, each of the four sections, the four subsections within these ten chapters, they have a similar flow to them. As I said, they start off with Luke reminding us that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. Those are the literary markers that show us here's a new section, new section. And then Luke, I'm sorry, almost immediately after that reminder, somebody comes up to Jesus and asks him a really weighty question. And then Luke spends the rest of that section showing us how Jesus answered the question. Not just in that one conversation with that person, but in a series of conversations. He continues to unpack that question. So, let me show you. In the first section here, look at chapter 9, verse 54. Very quickly, after we're told that he set his face to Jerusalem, James and John come and they ask Jesus if he wants them to call down fire from heaven on an unresponsive village. And then Jesus, we'll dig into this in a few moments, but Jesus basically responds in the next series of dialogues by saying, no, I want you to proclaim the kingdom of God. We're not calling down fire, we're proclaiming the kingdom. And the rest of this section, all the way down to 10 verse 37, describes the plan for this proclamation of the kingdom. That's why in your map, we've called this section proclaiming his kingdom. In this section, we see a large number of disciples, not only the 12, going out to proclaim the kingdom in Jesus' name. 
In the second section, right after we're told that Jesus is on his way, in chapter 10, verse 40, Martha asks Jesus whether he cares that her sister has left her to serve alone. She asks Jesus to tell Mary to help her with the work. And Jesus will respond by saying that he absolutely cares about what Mary has done. Because, in fact, Mary has chosen the better portion, which is to sit at Jesus' feet and grow closer to him. And the rest of this section, the next few chapters, describes the process for such growth in the lives of those who will sit at Jesus' feet. In this section, we get instruction about a boatload of really practical topics, such as the Holy Spirit and prayer and tradition and money management and repentance. And the question all throughout is, will you sit at Jesus' feet and listen to what he has to say regarding such personal matters? This section we call growing his kingdom because we, we grow as we sit at his feet. Now in the third section, right at the beginning, in 1322, we're told Jesus was on his way. And then in the next verse, Luke 1323, a random person asks Jesus this weighty question. Are those, uh, will those who are saved be few? It's the same thing. Big question right away. And then Jesus goes on to answer it in this section. He acknowledges that they will, in fact, be few. And very many will strive to enter the kingdom, but will find themselves weeping outside. And the rest of this section shows a great concern for how many will get in and how many will be left out. This section is where we get famous parables such as the wedding guests. Some are invited in and some are left out. The lost sheep. The lost coin, some are found. They're lost, but then they're found. The prodigal son and his older brother. The rich man and Lazarus, the one who gets in at Abraham's bosom and the one who goes to Hades. So we've called this section on the map, numbering his citizens. Jesus is talking about who goes where and how they fit. And then in the fourth section, which begins in 1711, pretty close to the beginning of this section, chapter 17, verse 20, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him when the kingdom of God will come. That's the question that sets up the fourth part here. And Jesus goes on to claim that the kingdom has already arrived. It is among you, but they are simply unable to recognize it for what it is. And the rest of this section then describes how to recognize the kingdom, how it is already upon us, and how most Jews of that generation are just about out of time to enter it. In this section, we get illustrative scenes, such as nine Jewish lepers expressing no gratitude for being healed. We get encouragement to keep praying so that the Son of Man will find faith on earth when he comes. And we get a parable about a man who becomes king and returns to his people to check on how they are stewarding what he entrusted to them. So we've called this in the map, Timing His Kingdom. It's where he talks about the when this all happens. So in this sermon, I'm calling this section, The Life of Discipleship, on your outline, on, on our map, our outline, we've also called it the defendant's goals because we could 
describe the life of discipleship, the life of following Jesus as the accomplishment of Jesus' goals for his own people. This section describes life in the kingdom of God, the life of those who would be his disciples, and it concerns four main topics. Our call to proclaim his kingdom, our call to how to grow as citizens of the kingdom, it, it deals with who is a true citizen of the kingdom and who is not. And it deals with how to recognize that the kingdom has in fact come through Jesus. So that gives you your bearings here. And now that I've set the stage and given you the big picture of these 10 chapters, we're ready to go back to the beginning of the section to see how Luke kicks it off. The first thing that you and I must realize about life in this kingdom of Jesus is that this time of the kingdom now, it is not a time for unflinching judgment or arrogant condemnation, but it is a time for patient yet urgent proclamation of the kingdom. That's why I've titled the sermon, Patient Yet Urgent Proclamation. The time that we are in right now, which Jesus initiated while on earth, is not a time for unflinching judgment. It is a time for patient yet urgent proclamation of the kingdom. Luke unpacks this in this opening section in two parts. We'll see that now is a time for patience and now is a time for urgency. Let me pray again now as uh, we're about to, to read at greater length God's word. Father, please help us to hear and understand your word and strengthen us to see that now is a time for patience and simultaneously a time for urgency. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now is a time for patience. Verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. So here we have Jesus committing himself to accomplish the salvation of God at Jerusalem, verse 51. This is where he said earlier that he must go there to be handed over to the authorities so they can kill him. And now he sends messengers ahead to make preparations in a Samaritan village. Now, we learn from elsewhere in the Bible that ordinarily Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. The Samaritans lived in the middle region between the northern province of Galilee and the southern provinces of Judea. Those were the two main provinces of the Jews. Samaria was stuck in the middle. The Samaritan people themselves were descendants of people that the Assyrians had brought in to occupy the land about seven centuries before this. After they had captured the Israelite northern kingdom, took them away, they brought these people from other lands, and these, those expatriates had intermarried with the few poor Jews who were left behind. And for this reason, most of the Jews hated the Samaritans, considering them 
half-breeds, low-class people. Now, it's only to be expected that verse 53, the people there would not receive Jesus because Jews typically have no dealings with Samaritans. But we're told here that they did not receive him particularly because his face was set toward Jerusalem. You see, there is a great religious rivalry between the cities, Jerusalem of the Jews and Gerizim of the Samaritans. Both groups of people claimed to worship the same God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham. But each tribe believed their own holy city to be the legitimate holy city. They believed their own city to be the only place where you could actually meet with Yahweh and be made right with him. So with Jesus committed to going to Jerusalem, as we're told in verse 51, and that now drives his ministry, the Samaritans would take that as a rejection of what they hold most dear. He's rejecting their city, Gerizim. And so James and John, two of Jesus' closest associates, they are understandably enraged at this spurning of the Messiah, of God's chosen one. So they ask Jesus if they should call down fire from heaven to deal with the contemptuous inhabitants of this backwards village. In the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah had called down fire from heaven on a few occasions. He did it once on a mountain to show that Yahweh is the true God who alone can do wondrous deeds. And then he did it twice more to consume detachments of troops sent by a wicked Israelite king to take him into custody. And James and John want to take on the role of Elijah. And we ought, we ought to stand in awe of their tremendous faith. That they think it's possible, that they have the faith like Elijah, that God will send fire to show who he is and to consume the evildoers. However, they want to call this judgment down on this village, but verse 55, Jesus rebukes them and simply takes them to another village, presumably a village that will receive him instead of rejecting him. What's the point here? This, this brief episode at the beginning here of this section. We're here at the very beginning of this literary stasis with Jesus on the way to Jerusalem where Jesus' followers are smack dab in between the promise of salvation of the previous few chapters and the accomplishment of salvation about to come when he gets to Jerusalem in chapter 19. And they're in between these times and Jesus wants his disciples to know that this in-between time, this time of eager anticipation is a time for patience and not for judgment. This is a time for long suffering and not condemnation. This is a time for thick skin and not for aggression. And this sets the tone for the next 10 chapters where Jesus will take great care and patience to understand people and to serve them and to listen, to teach, to persuade and to warn them of what is coming. But he doesn't go around blasting people for their disobedience or for their envy or for their quarreling. He bears with them demonstrating God's incredible patience, not wishing for any to perish, 
but wanting all to reach repentance and come to a knowledge of his kingdom. How does this apply, friends? We are not in the business of punishing people for their sin. We, too, are, find ourselves in a waiting period between the times. As the New Testament unfolds, we find out that we, too, are in the midst of this waiting period. We are between the arrival of Christ's kingdom and the completion or the consummation of his kingdom from his, the first time he came and the second time that he will come. We are in this time where sin's penalty has been dealt with, but sin's presence remains with us. And we are waiting for the Lord Jesus to return in glory, to finally reunite heaven and earth, and to bring final salvation from sin forever. And so we too are not to be agents of condemnation, but we are to be agents of salvation. This means that we must be very patient with people. Now is a time for patience. Though we are reviled, we do not revile in return. Though we are assaulted, we do not assault in return. Though we suffer, we utter no threats, but we entrust ourselves to the one who will judge justly. And we do these things simply because it is how the Lord Jesus has treated us. Friends, he has been exceptionally patient with you and with me in our sin and in our weakness, has he not? Parents, I understand that your children can and do sin against you. And in their weakness, they annoy you and they get in the way of your plans and your ideals and your schedules. But brothers and sisters, it is not your job to make your children pay for it. Your anger will never produce the righteousness of God in them. Please be patient. Students, I understand that it is not popular nor academically respectable, typically, to identify as a follower of the Lord Jesus. But it is not your job to fight back, to damage reputations, to call people names, to give yourself your self-respect back. Please be patient. To everybody, if people don't receive you on account of your connection to Jesus Christ, the best thing you can do is not get upset about it. Just move on to another place. Please be patient. And if you don't yet trust in Jesus or follow him, please don't be deceived. The lack, the absence of destructive divine fire in your life right now is not a sign of stability. It is merely a sign of God's patience toward you. He is giving you time to come to your senses. Please turn away from your sin and trust Jesus. Please do it today.
Don't wait another day. So while we are called to be patient along with the Lord, what are we to do? What do we do in our patience? If we're not in the business of punishing people, what is our business? So Luke moves in the next paragraph to tell us that now is a time for urgency. Now is a time for urgency. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So in this paragraph, Luke gives us three snapshots of potential disciples. Notice how the first one and the third one both come to Jesus and offer to follow him with a sense of idealism. They both say, I will follow you. The middle one, the second one, is approached by Jesus. Jesus is the one who goes to that guy and he's given a direct command to follow me. So this structure with the first and third ones parallel to each other, that ought to draw our attention to the second one, which contains Luke's punchline. So let me first explain what's happening with these idealists in the, at the beginning and end, the first and the third. The first one is a broad idealist. In verse 57, he thinks he can follow Jesus wherever he goes. And Jesus never says whether this guy can or he can't. Jesus just asserts the cold, hard reality about what it will be like to follow him wherever. He says, basically, we're not going to have great accommodations. The implicit question is, can you handle that? The life of one who follows me is a life of elective homelessness. Do you think you can handle that? That's how he deals with the broad idealist. The third potential disciple here in verse 61 is a narrow idealist. He thinks he can follow Jesus, but... He thinks he can follow Jesus, but... I will follow you, Lord, but... Let me just tie up some loose ends at home first. Let me say farewell to those at my home. Let me get my affairs in order. I want to follow you, and I will certainly do it. I mean it. Let me just figure a few things out first. Both of these potential disciples are skilled at talking a good game. They're filled with idealism. I will follow you. Those four words. How often will we say those words? I will follow you. But it remains to be seen whether they will put any of it into action. Now, we're not told what happens Maybe they set aside their conditions and followed Jesus, or maybe they didn't. We don't know. 
So I won't, not drawing any conclusions about these two specific characters, but Luke paints them very generally. He doesn't name them. He doesn't tell us what happened. He's just giving us these uh, pictures, stereotypes almost. I think they represent a whole class of people that we have had much experience with. People we can relate to. These, these are the type of people who will tell you all about their grand plans and about how much they love God and they want to do the right thing. But perhaps when it really comes down to it, their talk is just hot air. It likely doesn't translate into action. They wither when the going gets tough. And it can be very tempting to put much confidence in such people very quickly. They have charisma. They enter a room and they, they, they're, they're magical in the community. They're filled with grand ideas and all the right lingo. They appear to be well-read, thoughtful believers. And they're very good at pointing out all the problems around them. And we think, let's put them in leadership. Let's have them preach or teach. Let's give them more responsibility. But Jesus is clearly concerned with one thing. Will they stay the course? Will they really endure when it gets difficult to continue? Let's take a look at their family lives. Those whom they want to uh, say farewell to. Those who think that they can do anything. Let's look at their personal lives. Let's look at all these things, their money, all the things he's going to unpack in these next few chapters. And let's see, will they be single-minded? Will they be focused on plowing that row of grain without looking back and having second thoughts? And so this leads us then to take a look at the second example of a would-be disciple here. And the paragraph's punchline comes in here. What is it to be single-minded? What does it look like for a true disciple to stay the course? What ought we to endure at focusing on? Look again at verses 59 and 60. To another person, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus wants this guy. He doesn't wait for the guy to take initiative. He goes to him and calls him and says, follow me. But the man has some concerns, pretty serious ones. Burying one's parents is just about the most important duty expected of a grown adult in this culture. He's not just making excuses. However, Jesus claims to be even more important. This guy's saying, let me, let me go and bury, first go and bury my father. This is perhaps a little something like someone today saying, Lord, let me first go and pay off my loans. Then I'll come and follow you. Or Lord, let, let things in my life first settle down. Then I'll follow you. Or let me first go and finish my degree. Then I'll follow you. Now, none of these things are bad. I encourage you to pay off your loans, to settle down, and to finish your degree. 
I'm not saying that to be a Christian, you must leave those things undone. What I am saying and what Jesus is saying is that there is one thing that ought to be far more urgent than all of those other things. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This is the most urgent and critical task of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Anything that gets in the way of this mission is something that ought to be left to deal with itself. Let the dead bury their own dead. So if you can finish your degree while proclaiming the kingdom of God, do it. And if you can pay off your loans while proclaiming the kingdom of God, do it. But if you can't do both, make sure you choose the proclamation of the kingdom of God over whatever is in conflict with it. The time we are in is a time of great urgency. How does this apply? We are not in the business of punishing people. But we are in the business of proclaiming the kingdom of God. And right here, Luke sets up this first subsection of these 10 chapters, these next next chapter and a half, where he focuses on proclaiming the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Just because we're not in the business of punishing people for their sin, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that we have nothing to say about sin. Our business is not punishing people, but it's proclaiming the kingdom to them. We are here to tell people that God has come in the flesh and he has become king. We are here to tell people that, that he is in the process of making everything right again. Our sins can be forgiven and salvation can come to our lives and our homes. And we are in the business of proclaiming that those who reject God's salvation, those who reject the Lord Jesus, will face a day when they have to pay for their own sin. Now, we don't wish this on everyone. And we don't make them pay, but we tell them that the day is coming when they will pay. This is a reality that we must present clearly and persistently. So if you aren't yet a Christian, please bow the knee to King Jesus. It will be a hard road to follow him. You might have nowhere to lay your head, but it will still be easier for you than what you are currently living for. Sharing temporary hardship now with Jesus will prevent you from having to suffer eternal hardship in the future from Jesus. And if you are a Christian, friends, please bring your idealism about Jesus. I will follow you wherever you go. Please bring your idealism into line with Jesus' own expectations of enduring hardship and urgent mission. Like him, you might not have a place to lay your head. You might lose much because you follow him. However, what you have to gain so far outweighs the losses that you can leave it alone and you can go and proclaim the kingdom. So this passage shows us the beginning of a life of discipleship with Jesus. 
And the best thing that you can do while waiting for Jesus to finish his salvation is to patiently yet urgently proclaim that God has made Jesus king. The Lord Jesus himself has called us and he has strengthened us to this end. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to proclaim his kingdom. Please strengthen us by his spirit to be single-minded on proclaiming the kingdom. Lord, may we not, may we not throw everything else down the tubes. May we be faithful to all the responsibilities you've given us. But may this one thing never fall by the wayside in light of everything else. We trust in you. Help us to live in this time of patience and this time of urgency in a way that pleases you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.